Our text this morning is so very familiar that I encourage you to listen carefully as you're able and try and hear the words of God with freshness as if hearing for the first time. Hear now the word of God. And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Speak unto Aaron and unto his sons, saying, On this wise you shall bless the children of Israel, saying unto them, The Lord bless thee and keep thee. The Lord make his face shine upon thee and be gracious unto thee. The Lord lift up his countenance upon thee and give thee peace. And they shall put my name upon the children of Israel, and I will bless them. Let's pray. Almighty, eternal, most gracious Father in heaven, how profound are these words of blessing we read and hear. Words of blessing from you, who are creator of all, and who loves with a profound love all those who are called by your name. Grant us now, we pray, ears to hear and eyes to see with both freshness and greater clarity this benediction and the light of faith that illumines our understanding through the preaching of your word. For you alone are the one who sustains us moment by moment and the one from whom all blessings flow. And in your grace, you bestow blessings exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to the power that works in us, to whom be glory in the church by Christ Jesus unto all generations forever and ever. Amen. You may be seated. Well, here we are, some two and a half months since I last stood behind this pulpit, and it is a pleasure. Um, I would like to share with you some thoughts that I brought to the pulpit those two and a half months ago, but I also bring this morning. If you recall, we talked about our thoughts of God, and it is a weighty subject. And being the first time, I had the privilege of bringing the message before the church. I had this image in my head of a toddler who is just learning to walk and pulling up to the coffee table there in the family gathering. And that image continues... And, and I saw the toddler standing up at the coffee table, as it were, and now beginning to expound to his parents all the technical wonders of walking. <laughs> and so now, as I approach the pulpit, I'm that toddler who's beginning to cruise, and I'm going to tell you something about a marathon and how to run it well. So if you could keep that picture in your head, it might be helpful. Um, our text this morning, as I indicated, is very familiar, and you may be wondering why this benediction. Well, for those of you who know my routine, I, I work in Peoria, 
some 450 miles from here. I get up on Monday morning. I drive the same 450 miles, and typically on Thursday I return those same 450 miles. That gives me a lot of opportunity to study and to uh, absorb good teaching. And it was in, in the course of one of those drives as I was listening to the Word of God, and I came across a message from Sinclair Ferguson, and he mentioned something that, that really spoke to me. And so I'll share that with you toward the end of this message. But speaking of driving, it, um, it brings to mind some of the risk we may encounter with something so familiar as this benediction. Those of you who drive will no doubt remember a time when you're driving along and it's been maybe 10 miles and you look up and you realize that you have zoned out. You say, how did I get here? You may have even taken turns. We need to be careful when we come to the components of our liturgy, even as Pastor Lovett reminded us this morning, to not zone out. There's another risk that we need to be careful about. Um, The benediction that we speak of that is so familiar typically comes at the end of our liturgy. And so I encourage us as we come to the benediction not to check out. The benediction is not those credits scrolling at the end of a movie. They are a blessing from the Lord. So, we'll start with the main point. What is the main point in view in preaching this particular text this morning? What is it that we should take away? Well, it's quite simple, actually. I would like that when we hear this benediction in the future, we will never again hear it as a rote liturgical element, but rather that we receive these words by faith for what they truly are, an efficacious blessing from God to his people, the church, and by doing so, we are strengthened and renewed in the promises of the gospel. So, this message, we have five observations I would like to share with you. We come to the first of these. We should understand the definitions and distinctions of the terms we use when considering the benediction. The title of this message, as you may have noticed, is Gospel Benediction. So let's make sure we have a good working definition of benediction before going any further. Later, we will see with greater clarity, I I trust, why we should look at this benediction as a gospel benediction. But for now, let's limit the question to what is a benediction? Taking a look at the two root words we find there, bene, which means well or good, and diction, meaning say or speak. Therefore, we can conclude that a benediction is good words. They are spoken with the intent of blessing. And this is precisely what we see in the first two verses, is it not? And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Speak unto Aaron and his sons, saying, On this wise ye shall bless the children of Israel, saying unto them. The Lord delivered to Moses the instruction that was assigned to Aaron and his sons, 
And the instruction is this. The priests are to speak to the children of Israel. These words of benediction, and in so doing, a blessing is being given. As we attempt here to understand with greater clarity the nature of a benediction, some of us may be asking, how then is a benediction different from a doxology or perhaps a prayer in general? I would like to contend that the difference is both in the direction and in the content of the words. If we consider Paul's first letter to Timothy, chapter 1, verse 17, we read, Now unto the King, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only wise God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. This comes at the opening of his epistle to Timothy. And Paul is beginning to convey all that Christ has done for him, this pitiful sinner. And, and you can just see him exalting in all that Christ has done. And he just sort of spontaneously bursts into doxology. And so this fits the form of a doxology or glory saying, if we're looking for a root definition. We note here the direction of these words are from man, in this case Paul, toward God. And the content is focused exclusively on the glory of God. There is no room for our needs or accomplishments in the context of a doxology. It's all about God and His glory. It is often a spontaneous overflow of our praise in who He is. As we consider the more general form of prayer, we see that general prayer shares with doxology the directional component, that is, from man toward God, but differs in that the content of general in the content of general prayer, we may bring our petitions. Indeed, we are commanded to do so. In contrast to both doxology and general prayer, the direction of a biblical Benediction or blessing is from God toward man. John Owen puts it this way, as to the nature of it, blessings in general are the means of communicating good things according unto the power and interest in them of them that bless. Or if you're like me, you sometimes struggle a bit with the writing style of the great Puritans like John Owen, and so we might put it this way. A benediction is an effective means of communicating good things from God through human instruments. We can see this quite readily in Scripture when we read of fathers bestowing a blessing to their sons, the blessings of God Perhaps Noah comes to mind, or Isaac, or Jacob. Where the human instrument is the father, we might refer to these as fatherly, or paternal blessings or benedictions. In our text this morning, however, we see that the benediction or blessing is to be spoken by Aaron and his sons, or more generally, the priesthood. And so we will refer to this type of 
biblical blessing as a priestly benediction. Before we delve further into why we need to see the importance of this being a priestly blessing, however, let's first take a moment to consider the form of the blessing, which brings us to our second point. We should note the particular beauty and structure of this benediction. The Lord bless thee and keep thee. The Lord make his face shine upon thee and be gracious unto thee. The Lord lift up his countenance upon thee and give thee peace. The first thing we notice is that there are actually three statements of blessing within this one blessing. And each one begins with the Lord. You will note in your copy of the scriptures that Lord is spelled with all capital letters, indicating to us that in the Hebrew text from which this is translated into English, we are talking about the proper name of God, Yahweh. The Lord bless, the Lord make, the Lord lift. As we hear this blessing in the name of the Lord repeated these three times, our minds may run to that heavenly scene described so vividly at the beginning of Isaiah 6, where we read, In the year that Uzziah died, I saw also the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. And his train filled the temple. Above it, the seraphims, each one had six wings. With twain he covered his face, and with twain he covered his feet, and with twain he did fly. And one cried to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Or perhaps... We may see and hear by virtue of this threefold blessing something of the Trinitarian nature of our God. God the Father bless thee. God the Son make his face to shine upon thee. God the Holy Spirit lift up his countenance upon thee. But at a minimum, surely we see the emphasis and therefore the veracity of and importance of the content of this blessing in the threefold repetition, a poetic, progressive parallelism, if you will. But there's more. As English readers of this blessing, we do not have the benefit of seeing what the careful Hebrew reader, especially in its original context, would have found to be delightful in the embedded divine design of this blessing as our Hebrew reader considers the form and shape of the blessing, he would have noted that in the first line, there are three Hebrew words. Coming to the second line, he would note there are five Hebrew words. And then, looking at the third line, he sees that there are seven Hebrew words. Even as he is pondering the arithmetic structure and shape of this blessing, he considers it further. And he sees that the design is even evident in the number of syllables. 
In the first line, there are 12 syllables. In the second line, there are 14 syllables. And in the third line of blessing, there are 16 syllables. As his delight builds, he notes there is yet more to see in the number of consonants found in each line. In the first, 20. In the second, I'm sorry, in the first line, there are 15. In the second, there are 20. And in the third line, there are 25 consonants. But what may have actually delighted him even more is he considered there are 15 words. Three of those words are the name of the Lord. 15 minus 3 leaves 12. And so we have 12 words that constitute the blessing, the Lord present in the midst of the 12 tribes, giving his blessing and benediction. Isn't this wonderful? To know God in his goodness, in his perfection, in his wisdom, built into and preserved in the very fabric of this blessing, an orderliness and a particular beauty that excites our minds as we consider his blessing. Indeed it is. And this brings us to our third observation. We need to see this blessing in the context of the atonement. This benediction is found at the end of the Old Testament liturgy, as it were, at the consummation and conclusion of the sacrifices made for the sins of the people. Difficult as it may be for us in our contemporary context and with our modern minds, consider with me the setting where we find this priestly benediction. All of the people are gathered at the door of the tabernacle of the congregation. This is the great day of forgiveness. We have Aaron, the high priest, who along with his sons on the Day of Atonement undergo a ritual washing by Moses himself. And then they are dressed in the particular garments that the Lord has specified. They put on the linen undergarments, the coats, the robes, And then upon Aaron, the high priest, is placed the beautiful ephod, woven of gold, purple, and scarlet linen threads. And added over this is the breastplate. The breastplate with the twelve distinct stones, each one having the name of one of the tribes of Israel engraved upon it. And so... Aaron represents the people of God to this breastplate, or added the urim and the thummim. And upon his head is placed a linen priestly cap. And then Moses takes anointing oil, oil which has been prepared from olive oil, and to which has been added the finest myrrh and cinnamon and calamus and cassia, according to the recipe delivered by God. 
And he anoints everything in the tabernacle to set it apart for the service. And then Moses approaches Aaron. And he pours the anointing oil on Aaron's head to sanctify him. Now all is ready. With both the tabernacle and all of the instruments contained therein, and the priest properly prepared, the time comes to bring in the bull for a sin offering. Aaron and his sons placed their hands on the head of the bull to signify the imputation of their sins to the bull. The bull is then slain, and its blood is taken. The priest takes some blood and places it on the horns of the altar. And the remainder of the blood is poured there at the base of the altar. And then the particular inward parts that the Lord has specified are taken from the bull, the long lobe of the liver and the kidneys, and the fat that surrounds these things are burned on the altar. And the rest is burned outside the camp. And then the moment comes that the people have been greatly anticipating. Two goats are brought in. They are presented to the people at the entrance of the tabernacle of the congregation. And lots are cast. Based upon the results, one goat is presented to the Lord for a sin offering. And as was done with the bull, the goat is slain. Its blood is taken behind the veil while the people wait outside the tabernacle of the congregation or the tent of meeting while Aaron the high priest makes atonement for the sins of the people. And when all is done in accordance with the Lord's instruction, Aaron emerges and the one remaining goat is brought to him. And then Aaron lays his hands on the goat, confesses the iniquity of the people upon the head of the goat, and the goat is sent away into the wilderness by one who is worthy to the task. And thus, in visual form, the goat carries away the guilt of the people. The alienation that was due to the people is now removed into the wilderness. But one more thing is needful. All is not yet complete until Aaron turns toward the people gathered and he lifts up his hands and he proclaims the blessing of the Lord upon them. The Lord bless thee and keep thee. The Lord make his face Shine upon thee and be gracious unto thee. The Lord lift up his countenance upon thee and give thee peace. Peace. That great shalom of God is both pronounced and conveyed. And at the conclusion of the priestly benediction, the glory of the Lord appears. The sacrifices are consumed upon the altar by fire. It comes out from before the Lord and the people shout and fall upon their faces. But this atonement is not final. The fullness of the promise contained in all that has been seen is yet to be realized. For this scene of bloody sacrifices 
must be repeated again and again. As we read in Hebrews 10, these are but a shadow of the good things to come and not the very things themselves. For it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats should take away sins. You see, the true shalom of God, the peace that we long for, is found and fulfilled only in Christ Jesus. As Paul writes in Romans 5, verse 1, Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom also we have access by faith into His grace, wherein we stand and rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. And this brings us to the fourth observation. We need to see the very nature of this blessing as being fulfilled in Christ Jesus. Turn with me, if you will, or just flip back in your liturgies to the very end of Luke's Gospel, chapter 22. Here we find a record of those appearances of Christ after His resurrection and leading up to His ascension. In verses 13 through 31, we read the account of the walk to Emmaus with the two, if you recall, which culminates at a meal where we see that Jesus breaks bread and in the breaking of the bread, their eyes are opened and they realize that their traveling companion has been the Lord himself and then he vanishes. And so his two companions with hearts of flame, set out right away to Jerusalem, where they find the eleven apostles gathered with the church, as it were, and begin to tell the story of traveling with Jesus and how their eyes were open (coughs) at the breaking of the bread. And even as they were telling the story, Jesus appears in the midst of them, in the midst of the gathered church there at Jerusalem. And His first word there, is the last word of the priestly benediction. Peace. Peace be unto you, he says, and he proceeds to open to them their understanding, explaining that all the things written of him in the law, in the prophets, and in the Psalms must be fulfilled. And thus it was necessary for him to suffer and to be raised from the dead the third day. Which brings us Now to verse 50, where we read, And he led them out as far as to Bethany, and he lifted up his hands and blessed them. And it came to pass, while he blessed them, he was parted from them and carried up into heaven. And they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy, And we're continually in the temple praising and blessing God. Do you see here the priestly benediction not only pronounced but fulfilled? Do you see that Christ, our high priest, takes upon himself the sins of the people of God? That his blood is shed for the remission of sin? That God's holy wrath is perfectly and finally satisfied. And so there is true peace, true 
shalom. But this time, the people respond to the blessing from their one true high priest, not with shouts of fear and falling down upon their faces when Aaron, as, he, as they did when Aaron pronounced the blessings of God, but with worship and great joy and praising God in the temple. You see, the blessings that, was but, that were but a shadow under the Aaronic priesthood are the very reality that we now enjoy in Christ. The Lord bless thee and keep thee. Our high priest Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, Paul writes to the Galatians, having become a curse for us that the blessing of Abraham might come upon the Gentiles in Christ Jesus, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. Therefore, we see that Christ became a curse for us so that His blessings might flow to us. And Christ does indeed keep us as we read in John's Gospel, My sheep hear My voice, and I know them, and they follow Me. And I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish. Neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. My Father, which gave them to me, is greater than all, and no man is able to pluck them out of my Father's hand. I and my Father are one. We, who have been given by the Father to the Son, are kept safely and securely by the One who is Himself one. With the Father. The Lord make his face shine upon thee and be gracious unto thee. What are we to understand in this line of the blessing? Consider Christ bearing the punishment of our sins, the punishment our sins deserve there upon the cross at Calvary. A darkness falls upon the land. And God turns His face away from His only begotten Son. And darkness and judgment are there. But in turning His face away, God is pouring out His wrath. And at the end of this, having done all that was necessary, Jesus cries out, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And so we see that Jesus, by his gracious substitutionary atonement, endured that turning away of God's face that we might enjoy the brightness of the glory of His face shining upon us. As God looks not upon our frail and sinful selves, but He sees the righteousness of Christ. And in so doing, as we see Him with unveiled face, and as we behold the glory of the Lord, we are transformed into His image from one degree of glory to another. And this brings us to the third line of blessing. The Lord lift up His countenance upon thee and give thee peace. Fellowship with God 
having now been restored by the once for all perfect sacrifice of Christ and all righteousness having been fulfilled, we see here a picture that is quite beautiful. The Lord lift up His countenance upon thee. If I understand correctly, this is a picture of a father lifting up his face to his child. And there is perfect, unhindered delight. There is joy fulfilled. And the countenance of the Lord is upon us as his children. Is this not something we long for? It is. And thanks be to God, this is the reality that those who are in Christ now enjoy. Where we see in the benediction the promise of peace, we have now, this side of the cross, been given the very Prince of Peace Himself. Christ, our great High Priest, has not only pronounced the benediction, He became the benediction. The nation church gathered there with the eleven apostles and all those who saw the ascension not only received the benediction, they witnessed the personification of the benediction in Christ Jesus. And our fifth observation we need to see the efficacious nature and effect of this benediction. If you're like me, you may have grown up in church and heard this benediction perhaps a hundred times, but you never heard it expounded or preached. You maybe even never looked it up in the scriptures, and so you were unaware of the final verse of this passage in the full context. Verse 27. And they shall put my name upon the children of Israel, and I will bless them. And this is where Sinclair comes in. Sinclair Ferguson, in commenting on this text, notes that there is an old Scottish tradition wherein the congregation, immediately following baptism, or should I say immediately, following a baptism, would spontaneously break into singing this benediction. And we can readily see why this tradition emerged. So let's consider for a moment what happens at baptism. We profess that baptism is not benign. That rightly administered, the grace promised is not only offered, but really exhibited and conferred by the Holy Ghost to such as the grace belongs unto, and according to the counsel of God's own will in His appointed time. We also see that baptism is administered with water in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. So, as in baptism, we see the triune name of the Lord being placed upon His people efficaciously. In baptism, the name of Christ is placed upon us along 
with all the attendant blessings. Likewise, in the Aaronic benediction, the triune name of the Lord is placed upon His people, and His blessing is not only offered, but conferred to those who receive it by faith. I think that's a beautiful picture and helpful. So, having considered these things, here now, if you will, a few exhortations. Let us commit to never again hear these words of benediction, or any other for that matter, as mere rote components of our liturgy. For we now see more clearly that indeed they are more than that. Let us also commit to engaging our whole being, bodies, minds, and souls as we hear and receive this benediction. For the blessings are to those who receive them by faith. Let us also remember, as we hear or read this priestly benediction, the glorious beauty of its divine design. Is it not wonderful to consider how our great God has constructed these words of blessing. And may we be encouraged to have a richer understanding in receiving Christ's benediction, which testifies to the presence of God among the congregation, the completeness of the atoning work of our Savior, and the imprint of His name upon us at our baptisms. And let us do so to the end that the church's worship of our great triune God may be enriched for His ultimate glory. Let us pray. A glorious Father in heaven, hallowed be Your thrice holy name. What wonderful truths and perfect blessings You lay before us in Your Word. How marvelous are the works of your hands and the beauty of all you do and say. Grant us minds, we pray, that are ever hungry for a more perfect understanding of your ways and for how you have revealed yourself. And grant us hearts that thirst after your holiness and your righteousness, and tongues that are loosed from the bondage of self-seeking, ready to speak the life-giving, soul-saving truths of the gospel of Christ to our neighbors, to our unsaved family members, and whosoever you place in our paths who do not know the Lord as Savior. For this we pray in the victorious name of Christ. Amen.